When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. A very busy week on Capitol Hill, so let's jump right into it with Leanne Caldwell, co-author of The Washington Post's Daily 202 newsletter. Leanne, as always, welcome back to First Look. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So, um, correct me if, let me make sure I'm getting this right. Senate Republicans blocked the latest attempt to secure Ukraine aid, and that was after President Biden spoke to the nation and said he was ready to negotiate. So what's going on here? Yeah, so let's just take a step back here. There is this $110 billion emergency funding package. It's money for Ukraine, money for Israel, money for Taiwan, money for humanitarian assistance in Gaza. And then there is money for border security at the southern border with Mexico. So what's happening is Republicans blocked this aid package this week because there are not policy changes, not just money. They want policy changes to the border to stop the flow of migrants trying to get into the United States. Now, uh, there have been negotiations that have been ongoing between some Republican and Democratic senators uh, that fell apart this week uh, because Democrats say Republicans are trying to, to force Democrats to uh, swallow some right wing border policy changes. And so that's why things fell apart this week. But Jonathan, as of yesterday, mm-hmm. things started to be negotiated again. So we'll see. Right. I'm from, from everything that I'm reading, Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut um, is like, hey, I'm still here. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to deal. Let's talk. And apparently those talks are back up and running. But the president and OMB director Shalanda Young have warned there could be dire consequences uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine if a funding bill isn't passed before the end of the year. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the, the military implications of that bill not passing? So the Ukrainians have said that they are going to run out of bullets soon. Um, the administration as you mentioned, Shalanda Young says that there is no money by the end of the year, that uh, Congress has to allocate more money. Uh, Republicans are skeptical. Um, There was a classified briefing earlier this week with administration officials, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, uh, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, uh, was there, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, C.Q. Brown, And uh, Republicans asked specifically, what is the drop dead date that Ukraine is going to run out of money? And the administration officials did not give that date. They said that they would have to check with someone at the Department of Defense. And so they're not getting clear answers, which is something that is quite frustrating for Republicans. 
Um, and so that is still something that they want. But Democrats are extremely frustrated that Republicans are tying the border to Ukraine. And there has been very sharp words exchanged this week between Democrats saying, if Ukraine fails, if Vladimir Putin takes control of Ukraine, then it is Republicans' fault that the entire world order is going to be changed because they wanted changes to border security, something that is not related to Ukraine. And so tensions were pretty high on the Hill this week with a lot of frustration. And there is still a lot of doubt that any aid package will pass and that Ukraine will ever get another dollar from the United States. Leanne, I, I mean, time these days is, is so elastic that I can't remember <laughs> if it was this week or last week, but I think it was this week that you had Ukrainian officials on Capitol Hill talking to members of Congress. That was this week, right? Yeah, it was this okay. week, yep. So clearly the, those conversations with those people coming from the battlefield at, have had no impact on the dynamic on Capitol Hill so far. So Republicans insist, they say that the ones who still do support aid for Ukraine, because of, as we know, there's a growing number in the party who do not, the ones who do say that this is, this is important and that they are running out of time. They just don't know when that deadline is. And so it might have shifted the urgency a little bit mm. to get a deal on border, not to drop their demands on border. And so even though they think the ones who support Ukraine think that this is important, they are still saying that they won't back anything for Ukraine unless border security is solved. Okay, and so considering mm -hmm. that you know, uh, immigration has been an issue that has bedeviled Republican administrations yeah. and Democratic administrations, um, and Congress. <laughs> and Congress, yeah. That I'm have so much confidence that they're going to be able to right. get this done by the end of the by the end of the year. All right, let's let's talk about um, uh, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, um, who was ousted from the speakership in October. Uh, he announced this week that he's leaving Congress, not retiring, meaning leaving at the end of his term. He's leaving at the end of the year. He's out. Why did yeah. he wait until the end of his term? Being a rank and file member after being speaker and being an, a member of leadership for about a decade is not a lot of fun for Kevin McCarthy, apparently. Speaker Pelosi, former Speaker Pelosi, she's kind of loving her life, um, but she also was not kicked out of her position from her colleagues. Uh, and so Kevin McCarthy is... Um, you know, he was not someone who was much of a legislator anyway. Uh, he was someone who liked to be in the room and liked the power and uh, liked running the conference. And so there's he, there's really not much for him to do. Um, and so he decided to step back. And after a very um, contentious nine months as speaker, and really even, um, you know, a tumultuous tenure uh, in the Republican conference as he 
if you remember back in the mid 2000s, he was a young gun. This is yeah. he and Aaron, uh, Eric Cantor and Paul Ryan. They were Ryan. the three young people who were going to be the future of the Republican Party for decades to come. Now they're all no longer serving in Congress. Right. All all gone. Uh, yep. <laughs> one left because he was like, I'm tired of this. One got beat um, by yeah. uh, an insurgent candidate and the other one was ousted from his yeah, position. Yeah, all from and all from the far right faction of the party. So all three of them were really pushed out of their positions. Um, you know, Paul Ryan left, but he didn't like it anymore because he was losing support from the far right. And so it's interesting. I was talking to um, Charlie Dent, who is a former moderate Republican from Pennsylvania this week. And he had a really interest. He had something really interesting to say. I said, what does this mean for the establishment Republican? He said, people like Kevin McCarthy, people like me, we are not the establishment anymore. The MAGA right is the establishment. They are the ones who are in control and they are the establishment Republican now. Yeah. And we should also point out that the those far right folks that led to the ouster of those three folks. Um, a lot of them recruited by Kevin McCarthy, former speaker, Kevin mm -hmm. McCarthy. Um, Leanne, yeah. as always, we get up and running and talking and we've run out of time. <laughs> Leanne Caldwell, <laughs> co-author of the Washington Post Early 202 newsletter. As always, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thanks, you too, Jonathan. I'm gonna keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post associate editor Ruth Marcus and Washington Post columnist Ramesh Panuru. Ruth, Ramesh, welcome back to <laughs> welcome back to to first look. Um, Ruth, I'm going to keep talking about the the stalled effort to get Ukraine uh, uh, aid to Ukraine. Why is this happening, especially when there is bipartisan support for aiding Ukraine? Um, this is happening because the only way Washington gets anything done these days, if Washington is to get anything done, is under a gun with a deadline looming in a situation of dire need. And so that's where we are. And so I, you know, the I think that getting this Ukraine aid uh, agreed to and finished up and by the end of the year is really essential. But it is also true that um, Republicans are not the only ones who use um, moments like this as leverage to get things done. And so it makes sense for them from their political point of view to use this as a wedge on border security. I'm finding myself oddly and perhaps uncharacteristically these days feeling optimistic that there is a deal to be done here because I think there's a political interest. I'm really interested in what Ramesh has to say about this. But I think there's a political interest on both sides in getting a border deal. The pressure from the Republicans gives President Biden in his reelection campaign some political space to make agreements that the left flank of his party would balk at and not tolerate in other circumstances. And so to the extent that he can relieve some pressure on the border to make it look like he's doing things to regain control of the border. He is, um, to some extent, aligned with Republicans on this. 
So I think the combination of that and the imperative of helping Ukraine and not allowing Vladimir Putin to run roughshod over Ukraine and then potentially other countries in Europe uh, argues for a little bit of optimism in a kind of dreary week and dreary season. Well, Ramesh, I would love to get your reaction to what Ruth just said, but also putting a finer point on it. Um, you know, President Biden came out there and spoke to the nation this week and basically said to Republicans, let's make a deal. Like, I'm willing to talk about anything and everything. Everything is on the table. So do you share Ruth's optimism that, hey, there actually could be um, a deal that could be crafted on immigration that gets aid to Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan um, out of Washington? I do, actually. Uh, I think the predominant note that I'm hearing from Democrats is not we reject any linkage between immigration and Ukraine. It's um, you Republicans can't imagine that you're going to get everything that you want on immigration and we're going to get nothing. This has to be an actual deal. So it's a kind of, you know, it's it's a negotiation over the actual shape of the deal. And the, the question um, then becomes, I think, much more manageable than if you really have a kind of standoff over principle. Um, but I'm not seeing that. And I do think that the, the fact that you've got a majority in both chambers of Congress, plus the president, who actually do favor Ukraine funding, um, is, is the great sort of underlying um, constant in this debate. Uh, and I think it, it's hard to keep the majority of Congress from, from working its will on a matter which it actually cares a fair amount. Um, so I, I, you know, I think there'll be bumps in the road, but I do think that they will be able to come to a deal. Okay, so I, I'm writing myself a note here because it occurred to me that this optimism that I think the, the, the two of you share, and after listening to you, I'm like, hmm, I, they have a point. But I'm writing this note because my, my optimism is because of the Senate, because you've got the folks in the Senate who are negotiating this. My, where my pessimism comes in is what happens when it gets to the House. Is the does your does your optimism hold once what comes out of the Senate heads over to the House, Ruth? That, well, I think that's a really important question, and I think optimism and House are words that should not be used very often in the same sentence. Um, but what we have seen previously, and I think what we could see here is a sort of a unwieldy, unholy alliance between enough Democrats and enough Republicans to get this over the finish line. So um, it's not going to be a an absolute party line, every single Republican vote. It's it. If it gets done, it will get, I think that it will get done with a, a combo plan, which is, in fact, the way that things ought to get done in Washington and don't get done enough. True, true. Ruth, I'm going to stick with you because, um, there's, as the three of us know and news junkies know, all this week, there's been a lot of ink um, on the dangers, the potential dangers of a second Trump presidency. Our Post Opinions colleague, Robert Kagan, wrote a monster and important essay, huge essay, um, where he writes, quote, there is a clear path to dictatorship in the United States 
and it is getting shorter every day. And you wrote a column, Ruth, yesterday that argues a letter written by Senator J.D. Vance to Attorney General Merrick Garland this week proves Kagan is right. Explain. Well, Bob, I'm going to um, go back to 2015, when I think, when Bob wrote his, he's written, written a series of heartfelt, mm -hmm. dire, compelling, scary as heck warnings for us about the dangers of a Donald Trump presidency. Fascism is coming. Fascism is upon us. And he and I have been, I am a huge Kagan fan. So he and I have been having a robust um, and respectful conversation for many years now about whether he is overstating the case, whether, as I have gently suggested, he has been catastrophizing uh, about this. What I said to him privately, and so I can, I can share it now, is that I am more in agreement with his warnings and the degree to which I am scared about the future for our country now than I have ever been before, because we know Don what Donald Trump wants to do. We know um, how he is going to be better if he is, God forbid, reelected. He's going to be better at accomplishing his goals um, th the, in a second term than he was in a first term. He will not um, surround himself with people who will stand up to him. He will surround himself with a cadre of toadies. He will, if he needs to, um, he will use all the levers at, of executive authority uh, in his arsenal. But if he needs to and the courts tell him to stop, he could ignore court orders. We've never witnessed this before. And so, uh, and we we see the blueprint of this. Uh, I wrote a column yesterday about Ohio Senator J.D. Vance, who's a Yale Law School graduate who well knows better than this, who suggested, um, and he was just making trouble and ordinarily we would uh, ignore it as a stunt, suggested to the Secretary of State that he consider taking a look at Victoria Newland, who's the Under Secretary of State and happens to be Bob Kagan's wife, that he take a look at her security clearance, sexist much, and to, to, to the Attorney General that he investigate Kagan for promoting insurrection. This is crazy, but this is the kind of thing that a President Trump in power and a President Trump's State Department and Justice Department could do with their perceived enemies. So that optimism from the um, first segment, uh, don't translate that over into my general feeling about the world. Yeah, and to put a, and to amplify something um, that you wrote in your column about about Bob's wife, <clears throat> excuse me, Toria Newland. You write um, the little woman who was George W. Bush's ambassador to NATO and has decades of foreign policy experience in both Republican and Democratic administrations must be under her husband's thumb. I mean, to me, that was the the best paragraph in a in a terrific column. So so Ramesh. Ruth, Robert Kagan, more than a dozen writers in a special edition of The Atlantic are warning about authoritarianism or even dictatorship, um, as Kagan is um, arguing, in a second Trump term. Do you think they're being realistic or alarmist? Well, I, uh, I, I do think that there is some of what uh, Ruth was describing as catastrophizing. I, I think that 
that having been in the uh, business of writing uh, essays about politics and public policy for some years myself, I, I'm familiar with this this temptation. You write about, well, this is this thing is more likely than not to happen. And then if it happens, then this next thing is more likely than not to happen. And so on. Um, but uh, even if each step in that is correct, when you have eight of them, you're talking about something that's actually improbable. Now that said, should we be concerned? Absolutely. You know, what, what a five percent chance of of dictatorship is is actually quite alarming. And I think that the thing that is um, that is most alarming here is not really so many um, extrapolations about um, well, Trump is saying this, and maybe he means it this time. It's the fact that look. The guy tried to ignore the fact that he had lost an election and he subverted, he attempted to subvert the constitutional order in order to stay in power. Um, and that's, I think, all you need really to, uh, to have a great deal of concern about the idea that he would come back into the White House. Um, now, all these other things that he says are um, uh, additional reasons for concern, but like, Look about the thing he said a few days ago when he was asked by Sean Hannity um, if he had dictatorial tendencies, and he sort of tried to laugh it off and deflect and say, "Oh, just for a day when I when I take control of the border." You know, you could dismiss that as, um, you know, he's trying to say this is all ridiculous and he's trying to make a big joke out of it. But the joke falls flat because he did, in fact, already try to subvert the constitutional order. Yeah, he's not joking. <laughs> I'm very, very clear. I, I've made it a point on my show on MSNBC. Every, at least one block has to be devoted to what the man is saying because he's telling us what he would do in, in a second term. So um, this is for, for both of you because I would love to know why you think it is Republicans are relatively silent uh, on the danger our democracy faces right now. Ruth, you go first. Self-interest to, you know, is that one word or two words? I think it's hyphenated. Hyphenated. Uh, Repu Republican politicians are nothing if not, well, politicians generally uh, of both parties uh, are rational actors. Their first uh, imperative needs to be to make sure they set themselves up to be reelected. Otherwise they can't serve their districts, serve their states, whatever excuse it is they give to themselves. And so I think they, they, the, the story they tell themselves is, if I speak up about what I know to be true, I will be out of here. And number two, because uh, Republican voters are so solidly in Trump's camp, it will, my voice will not make a difference. This is shameful, but it is um, politics um, as practiced in, the real world, and that's why they're not speaking up. Um, Ramesh, there actually is a Republican who, who is speaking up, and his, his name is Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey. And at a debate Wednesday, Wednesday night, he wasn't shy about calling the absent Donald Trump a dictator. Listen. The fact is that when you go and you say the truth about somebody who is a dictator, a bully, who has taken shots at everybody, whether they've given him great service or not over time, who dares to disagree with him, then I understand why the Fees Three are timid to say anything about it. Now, um, I don't know if it was at the end of that comment or at the end of another, but he got applause 
and then the applause turned to booze, Ramesh. So uh, does that line of attack help Christie with Republican primary voters? I think at this point, Christie is engaged in something other than an attempt to get the Republican nomination for president. Um, he's he's trying to make a point. Um, but no, I don't think that 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 this is going to help his campaign. I just but, but his campaign is sort of not a real campaign um, at this point. He's uh, you know, I, I have to say when he says that's that sort of thing. Uh, it does stick in my craw a little bit just because, of course, he was one of the he was an early high profile endorser of Trump in 2016. And he stuck with him almost all the way through the end of his term as a uh, as a strong supporter. Um, I get that people can change their minds, but uh, but it is a little jarring um, to hear from Chris Christie uh, when a lot of other conservatives um, stayed uh, stayed against Trump. Uh, a lot longer than he did that time. Uh, I, I think that it's, but I, but I think that all of us actually make a mistake um, in thinking that it's just a matter of sort of craven self-interest. Although you know, there's always a lot of that in politics. I think that people also need to keep in mind that a lot of Republican voters and Republican politicians um, think that there is something to the idea that that these prosecutions are not entirely on the up and up, that some of them are abuses, some of them are politicized. I do think that they've all get, been kind of swirled into the blender a little bit so that um, in Republican minds, it's all like the weakest case against Trump is the one that they're fixated on, which frankly is the Alvin Bragg case in New York City. And so they think, well, you know, there, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people playing fast and loose with the rules to uh, to affect an election there too. I'm not saying that that is a, a just way of looking at the situation, given what Trump's actual record on the Constitution is. Again, but I am saying I do think it's a sincerely held view on the part of a lot of Republicans. Um, Ruth, Jonathan, can I, can can I please? Speak up yes. Here? Okay, yes. uh, because I knew the point was going to come um, in this otherwise kumbaya segment when Ramesh Take and it. I were going to disagree. And so, Take it away, Ruth. <laughs> um, I think that the argument from Republicans uh, that that we need to stick up for Trump because he is being unfairly targeted and prosecuted, and Ramesh and I happen to agree about the wisdom or not of the Alvin Bragg prosecution. But that is just a made-up excuse. Uh, these are people who refused to, fail to stand up to Donald Trump after January 6th. That could explain, or, you know, I'm not standing up for Chris Christie's silence and complicity in supporting the previous administration, but there was an intervening event, which was January 6th. Uh, seizing on these supposedly political prosecutions, um, some of them are stronger and more um, valid than others as an excuse for why we can't abandon Donald Trump is just an excuse. It is not the main cause. The main cause is a combination of self-interest and just um, frustration with Biden and um, a kind of desire, a scary desire among the populace for a strong man. And so I'm just going to really reject the notion that the reason we have Donald Trump is that uh, Democratic administrations or Democratic uh, attorneys general or DAs are uh, going unfairly going after Trump. Not true. Okay. 
Well, I'm just going to leave it right there. Ruth Marcus, Ramesh Panuru, as always, uh, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.